0: Father, as we come now to study and look upon your word, we do ask that you indeed will open our eyes, that we may see you as you really are, that you will open our ears, that we may hear and understand this message from your word, and that you will open our hearts, that we may not just be hearers of this word, but we may be doers also. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When things are uncertain, what do you do? Where do you look to? When things go bad, what do you do? We all go through such times at some point in our lives. And in the history of the world, there's a never ending uncertainty about what is round the next corner. After the Cold War, uh, in the West, things looked good. America was the world's only superpower. There was widespread economic growth and prosperity throughout the West. Indeed, throughout the the 1990s and into the 2000s, the Western world looked like it was sailing by. But then, September the 11th, 2001, the Twin Towers came down, the bomb in London. Now again, there's an uneasy uncertainty about the future. The Western economy, which looked to be that invincible rock, that could not be moved, has been seen to be little more than a small stone that is crushed under the weight of its own bulk and density. The history of the world tells us that empires come and empires go, and in their wake, they usually leave a lot of people in hardship and despair and create a very real uncertainty for very many people. Indeed, not only in the history of the world, but in our own individual histories, we come across things that remind us of how fragile we really are. Someone in the family gets cancer. What happens next? Someone dies. All seems so unfair, so merciless in a way. How do we live in such times? How do we live when you know that there's a God in heaven? For rather than helping the situation, that sometimes can complicate things even further for us. For then we have to try and understand, why would God let such things happen at all? And you see, this was the dilemma that Habakkuk was in as he looked out into his world, the world of Judah in the closing years of the 7th century BC. The kingdom of Judah had, had went through a period of great revival and now had turned to a period of great decline as the kings turned their hearts towards idols and greed rather than towards the Lord and his covenant. And Habakkuk, Habakkuk was lamenting such decline in his country and amongst his people. Yet the answer to his problem was not one that he would have been expecting. For God tells him in, in chapter 1 that he was going to bring in these Babylonians. Think of modern-day Iraq. And he's going to bring them in, and he's going to bring judgment on his people as they come in and take them into exile. And Habakkuk is perplexed. How can God allow such a thing to happen? How can God allow men to be treated like fish caught in a trawler's net, swallowed up and mercilessly destroyed by evil empires and greedy, power-hungry kings? Indeed, this was, this was God's very own people. This was God's chosen people. How could God allow such suffering to be inflicted on His people, His own chosen people, His prized possession. Was it right? Was it fair? These were the issues that Habakkuk was wrestling with in his mind. From his perspective, everything was very uncertain. What was going to happen next to Judah and to Jerusalem? How could God allow the Babylonians to do such evil? And how long would they be allowed to continue it? this merciless quest for power. And that was Habakkuk's second complaint in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. And then he moves on. He moves on into chapter 2, and he moves on to what he's going to do himself as he waits for an answer from the Lord. And that's what we're going to look at. So I want to look at this chapter in terms of four, four main points. Firstly, we see the waiting game. Secondly, the sovereign God. Thirdly, the correct response. And fourthly, we'll look at the five woes that Habakkuk pronounces. So the waiting game, the sovereign God, the correct response, and the five woes. Now, in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk sets out what he's going to do as he waits for God to answer his complaint. And he says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to his complaint. Now, firstly, we need to see here that Habakkuk expected an answer to his complaint. Now, it was a particularly bold complaint that he had put down, for it questioned the very character of God himself. And so he expects an answer to this prayer. He says, he will look and see what he will say to me. Habakkuk expected an answer. His complaint, his complaint to God was not a sign of disbelief, but rather of his confidence that God would in fact answer him. Many will complain that when times get hard, they just want to forget about God altogether. Others will say they, they won't believe in God because no good God can allow such violence, such suffering in the world. But Habakkuk sees all these things, and his response is not a rejection of God, but rather to pray and to take the issue to God. And there's a very valuable lesson in this. Habakkuk did not, even even with his dilemma, stop believing in God. He had his doubts, and who wouldn't in the circumstances he was in? But he goes to God in prayer, and he leaves it with him. He wasn't afraid to ask God the difficult question and to expect an answer to his crisis. How often we come across difficulties or something we don't understand, we pray, but we don't expect any answers. We assume almost that prayer, well, that answers don't come from prayer, that prayer is a pointless exercise. But another thing Habakkuk does is that he is prepared to wait on his answer. He takes up a position of waiting like a watchman on century duty on the city walls. The ramparts here were were areas built into the wall of the city where watchmen were stationed and they would be constantly on watch all the time in case the city was to be attacked. So Habakkuk uses this metaphor as a way of describing the fact that he's going to wait for the Lord's answer. He's going to, to pray and wait. He's going to look for an answer. He's going to be active in looking for it and waiting for it. It's not something that he's going to just pray about, forget it, but he's waiting patiently for the Lord's answer. Another very valuable lesson about prayer. Sometimes we have to wait. Like Habakkuk, we need to watch and wait for the Lord's answer. And sometimes this is the reason why we we don't think prayer is of any benefit, for we assume that when there's no answer, we assume that there's no answer because we expect it immediately, but we're not prepared to wait any length of time for it. And we live in this age. We live in the age of the microwave meal, the instant, instant coffee. We flick a switch, the lights come on. We turn a tap, we get water. We don't even have to go to the shop, really, to get food, for we can just log on the internet, a few clicks of the mouse button, and we can have it delivered the next day, or even that day, maybe. No need to wait for letters anymore. We've got email. It's instantaneous. We're very impatient people. We don't like to be kept waiting. If you're like me and you get stuck in a traffic jam, for any length of time, it's enough to get your blood boiling. Patience used to be a virtue, but not in our culture. And for Habakkuk, he was prepared to wait for an answer to his problem. He was prepared to wait and see and not assume that just because the answer didn't come on his time scale. That God wasn't going to answer. Sometimes we have to play this waiting game because God's timing is perfect, ours certainly is not. We think we know best and desire things to be instantaneous, but God doesn't respond like uh, text message or like email. Mind you, sometimes if you're waiting on somebody replying by email, you could wait long enough. That's another point. But we need to be prepared to wait on God and let him work things out the way he knows and he sees fit for it. he knows the end from the beginning we do not and there's no better person to sort out the world than him habakkuk waited expectantly and we should learn from him but secondly we see habakkuk answer or we see god answers habakkuk and shows himself to be the sovereign god the second point sovereign god then the lord replied Write down the revelation. Make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end. It will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Now, however long Habakkuk had to wait for this answer, we do not know. But it came. And it came as a revelation from God a revelation God had given to Habakkuk, which he was to write down and make plain. For it needed to be clearly understood so that a herald, that is a preacher, a messenger, could take it and proclaim it to the people. He could run with it. You see, God's message here, God's revelation came in response to Habakkuk's prayer and God answered him personally, but this revelation was for everyone as we shall see. And we see about this revelation, God says, that it awaits an appointed time. Again, we see that God has a time in which he will act, when he will bring things to fulfillment. And this revelation, this time, is speaking of the end, he says. Now, what end was he talking about? Well, in Habakkuk's terms here... It was the end of Babylon and the return of the people of God out of exile after the 70 years that Jeremiah spoke of. Remember, Daniel also also understood God was in control of these events that were about to unfold before Habakkuk's eyes. They weren't just random accidents in a vast sea of uncertainty. God was directing everything towards an end which he had planned the overthrow of the Babylonians by the Medes and Persians and the end of the exile. Remember, uh, Jeremiah spoke of the 70 years and when the people of God came into, uh, were taken into ca- captive into uh, Babylon, we had Daniel, Meshach and Abednego and so forth. And then when the Babylonians were overthrown by the Medes and Persians, the people of God came back With Ezra and Nehemiah. This is what God is is talking of here. The end of the exile. And again we see here that he says it will not prove false. It will be fulfilled for God always does what he says. His holy character depends on him being true to himself. So God's word will always be true. It will always come to pass. And from Habakkuk's perspective it may have seemed a long way to fulfillment. But For God, who is beyond time and space, it's no real trouble, is it? For though it linger, he says, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. God is working out his purpose. He will bring it forward to his appointed time and in his appointed way. Nothing will be able to stop it. God will do it and it will not delay. But, of course, this revelation is given to Habakkuk. Though primarily, we may say, speaking to the situation Habakkuk himself faced, it also speaks to the people of God in every age. For the basic problem here that Habakkuk was wrestling with was the problem of evil. What was God going to do about the evil in the world? What was God going to do about all that corrupted his people and his good creation? Indeed, this revelation, this revelation points further, points further to an end, to to beyond the end uh, and the destruction of the evil Babylon in history to the destruction of all that Babylon stands for. Now remember how Babylon is used in the book of Revelation as the great city of idolatry the city which stands opposed to and opposite the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is where righteousness dwells. Babylon is where they are drunk with the blood of the saints. The kings of the earth commit adultery with her. Babylon comes to stand for all human society that is opposed to God and His rule. Human society that hates and rebels against God. And this revelation speaks to us, as God's people, of the way in which God will bring judgment, not just on the Babylon of of the 7th century BC, but on Babylon the Great throughout the ages, at the last, the final judgment. God will bring His judgment on all that is evil and all that is wicked, and all those who rebel against Him and set themselves up against God and against His rule and against His Messiah. God is active in history. He is not passive. And God's revelation here to Habakkuk speaks of his control over nations and his direction of history towards his own ends. And ultimately, this judgment will come with the anointed one, the king God has chosen, his Messiah. Psalm 2, which we sang earlier, puts it this way, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He rebuked them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. The nations rebel against God. They set themselves against him, trying to break free from him. But God laughs, and he brings his wrath, and he brings his judgment by doing what? He installs his king on Zion, my holy hill. Who is this king? What's Jesus? Jesus the Messiah. It's the one who will rule the nations with an iron scepter and break them to pieces like a potter's vessel, to quote Handel's Messiah. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. This is the end to which God is moving and towards which this revelation is speaking of. The age of the Messiah. The return of the King. It moves towards a final judgment and on all evil. Which God will carry out through his Messiah. God is sovereign. And he's in control of nations and control of peoples. He rises them up like Babylon here. And he uses them to achieve his purpose, the judgment of his people. And then he tears them down again. By allowing the Medes and Persians to take them away. And like we, like Habakkuk, live in in an age of uncertainty. Every human age is an age of uncertainty. As we wait for this final judgment, this final end to which all history is moving, where God will judge the world by the man he has appointed, Christ Jesus. It's interesting too, in in verse 3, at the end, uh, the verse translated, though it linger, wait for it, could also be though he linger, wait for him. God will solve the problem of evil through his Messiah. But more than this, he will also solve the, pe- the problem of his people's sin as well, his people's evil. For God, if God is to judge all evil, then he will wipe it all out. He will take it all away. But that would mean that God's people who rebel and sin would have to go as well. After all, as Habakkuk says, God is of pure eyes than to look upon sin. So what's God going to do in order to solve this problem of evil in his good creation and yet spare his people as well? Verse 4 holds the answer. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by faith. Now, in verse 4, we find two different responses to God, two different ways which we can live in the world, either in self-sufficient arrogance, living without God and believing we do not need Him, or by faith in God and trusting in Him in all matters. And these two ways are are polar opposites. They're two different sets of people, the arrogant and the righteous. The arrogant are puffed up, full of pride in in themselves and what they have achieved for themselves. His desires, um, what he wants in life, are are not upright. They are not pure. They're not good. They're not true. Uh, But in contrast, the righteous are those who are right with God and live by faith. Now, there's no hint here, and we have to be clear about this, there's no hint here at all of this righteousness being given by works or by merit. In the Old Testament, like with, with Abraham, righteousness is a thing that is given. It is counted towards someone. Uh, Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So here, this righteousness, uh, the, the, the righteous are only righteous because God has made them so. Those who trust God and His promises are right with Him, and the result is that they live by faith. Faith in God and what He has promised to do. And these are the only two responses to the sovereignty of God. Either rejection of God and living in arrogant pride, or trusting God and being in a right relationship with Him, living by faith. The latter being the correct response to God's sovereignty over history. Paul, of course, uses this text uh, in, in Romans. As, uh, he uses it as, as the text of which Romans is the exposition, if you like. And he expounds it in terms of what it means for us in terms of salvation. And the book of Hebrews also uses it uh, when it talks about living by faith. See, for Habakkuk here, the only response was, that, uh, was to, to trust in God. For his salvation and live by faithfulness. Live, to live for God by faith. For once we have faith in God to save us, that will result in faithfulness to God in our life. Faith will produce faithfulness in God's people. And it's by this means then that God becomes, as Paul says in Romans, the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. God will still punish all evil, but his people will be spared from that final judgment because they trust in God's promises and they will be forgiven because their evil, their sin, will be punished, was punished at the cross of Jesus Christ and not on judgment day, the last day. And the result is that having been made righteous through faith in Christ, we live in faith as we trust in God no matter what the circumstances we face. Habakkuk could could not control the future nor his own destiny. All he could do was cry out to God for mercy and trust him. And of course, it's the very same for us. As we look at ourselves and the world, the correct response is still faith in Christ. As we look out towards a new decade, towards a new year, God has revealed himself fully and finally. His revelation has come fully and finally in the person of Jesus Christ. And he calls us to trust him and rely on him in all our lives. To live by faith, as Hebrews says, is to be sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now, we cannot see God's total control over the world at this present time. Like Habakkuk, we look out into a world of uncertainty. One in which, at times, it looks as if God is doing nothing. And as people are suffering greatly. And as if he's not there. But we live by faith. For we know that God is in control. And we are certain of that. We do not see it, but we know it. That is how we live, by faith. God has revealed himself to us and promised And promised us salvation. He has revealed to us His purpose and His plan, and the glory in in the person of Jesus Christ. And we live by faith in His promise to us through Him. If we look, take the book of Hebrews for a moment. It begins that uh, in Hebrews one verse one that God has spoken, and then it tells us how God has spoken right through until verse uh, until chapter eleven, where it then says, "Now live by faith." God has spoken. Live by faith. God has revealed himself. Live by faith. God has shown us who he is. Now live by faith. And in the words of Hebrews 2, God, in putting everything under him, that is Jesus Christ, God left nothing that is not subject to him, yet at the present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus. Who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We do not see everything under God's control, under Jesus' control, but we see Jesus. We see him as he is revealed to us, and we see what God is doing. And faith in God is the only response to God's sovereignty, who controls everything. And works out all things for the good of those who love him. The pride and arrogance of those who oppose God will be found out. They will be judged and will be found guilty. (coughs) And these are the only two options. Faith or unbelief. Arrogance or the obedience by faith. Self-sufficiency, trust in God. And Habakkuk goes on to describe the, the arrogant and, the, and pronounce judgment on them in the next verses to the end of the chapter, his five woes. Now, this, this word woe was a, an ancient word used in funeral rites. Uh, when they mourned the departed, they would say, woe, and then the person's name. And the prophets, uh, they used it to announce the destruction of those who opposed God, for they, they were as good as dead anyway. And in, in their arrogance, they they thought themselves to be secure, but in reality their number was up. It was basically what the prophets were saying. Woe to whoever. So in verses 5 through 19 here, Habakkuk pronounces doom on the Babylonians. For the, This, of course, is the, the primary setting, and the characteristics here describe the evil empire of Babylon. The he in verse 5 is most likely uh, a reference to the king of Babylon. But in more general terms, this he stands for for all evil empires, for all evil nations that set themselves against God. So we see that for the first woe, the first woe comes in the middle of the section between verses 5 and 8. And basically what he's saying is that they're doomed because of their greed. Because he is as greedy as the grave, and like death he is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all nations, takes captives all peoples. Will not all them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? The Babylonians were greedy for power and land and everything they could loot from all the nations. But their, would, their end would come because God would allow... Allows them to exploit other nations. So those nations then in turn turn against them. In verse 8. Then in verses 9 through 11 we see their building of their empire. The great Babylonian empire by exploitation and by injustice. But as they build it up the very walls that they build and create through that injustice. Will cry out against them in judgment. As witnesses to their injustice. And in verses 12 through 14, they use violence and torture to build up their cities, to expand their empire, thinking of themselves as great conquerors, yet it's all in vain that they seek to expand their own glory over the face of the earth. As they try and usurp more and more land, verse 14, why? Verse 14, the Lord will make His glory known through the whole earth. He will spread His knowledge to all peoples and no empire no arrogant people will stand in his way. In vain do they exhaust themselves to build up their empire, for it will come to ruin. And we know it did. And in verses 5 through 17, we see their use of, of their power to humiliate and suppress those around them. They get drunk, uh, which in, in Old Testament terms was used to, to, to denote the, the pouring out of wrath on, their nation, on, on other nations so they could look upon their nakedness. They demean others. They like to humiliate them so that they are seen as all-powerful. They are seen as mighty Babylon. But the cup of the Lord's right hand, the cup of God's wrath, is coming to them, and their glory will be replaced by shame. And then finally, verses 18 through 19, we see them as idolaters who worship idols the, the idols they make. And this expresses the fundamental reason for the, all that the Babylonians do. They refuse to accept the Lord as king and so they turn to idols and the result is that they are stupid. They say the idols, come alive as if it had some sort of power, as if this idol had power to change the world. But the real picture, the real reality, if you like, is seen in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The Lord reigns. The Lord is in control of the whole earth, and he will repay the Babylonians for their evil and their violence. God will bring his judgment, and they will fall. And not just on the Babylonian, on the Babylon of the seventh century, but the great Babylon will fall in judgment as well. As we read of it in uh, in Revelation 18 and 19, if you want to turn that up, and we'll take a look at that in a second. Revelation 18 and 19. <clears throat> and John there tells us, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She has become a home for demons and a haunt of every evil spirit. A, excuse me, a haunt of every unclean and detestable bird, for all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. And then it goes on to describe the, the doom of her, and the pain back of her, and the judgment that comes upon her. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion of her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Fallen is Babylon, the great And verse 19, we find there the people of God from all the world, from all history, shouting, Hallelujah! Praise God! Why? Because He has brought His judgment on the great prostitute, on great Babylon, on all that is evil. And as you turn over towards the next chapters, we find then the doom of all evil, the casting down of Satan, and the beginning of the new Jerusalém. You see, in the history of the world, any nation or society which deliberately turns its back on God turns out just like Habakkuk describes here. They begin to worship power and conquest rather than God. Think of Stalin's Russia, Hitler's Germany, Mao's China. All built on the premise that there is no God. And all used violence greed and exploitation to rule and gain power for themselves. But all in folly and stupidity for the Lord sits enthroned. He has sent his Messiah. He has raised him to life as judge of all the earth. So the only way to live is by trusting in him, asking him for mercy and to live in this world to live by faith. And let God direct his purpose as we wait for the end The great judgment. When he will take away all evil. When he will wipe every tear from our eye. Where there will only be the new Jerusalem, the city of God and the people of God. So, will you trust in Christ? And being made righteous, will you then live by faith even when it's difficult? When sickness comes, when pain comes, when uncertainty reigns, will you trust God or will you reject Him? Will you continue in self-sufficient arrogance like the Babylonians, believing that you can do it yourself, believing that you're good enough? You see, it's not always easy to do it, for we don't see everything at this present time in subjection to God there are still tsunamis there are still disease there's still sickness there's still death there's still rebellion evil and corruption in god's good creation but we see jesus we see his messiah we hear of him we see jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith let's pray Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your Messiah, whom you sent to this world to rescue us from our rebellion, and you raised him to life for our justification. We thank you that you raised him up to sit at your right hand to the position of authority where he rules and reigns. And we thank you, Lord, that you have revealed to us in your promises, in your word, how he will judge all people's how he will take away all evil and how he will usher in a new Jerusalem, a new creation wherein righteousness dwells. Help us, Father, to live in hope, to know that you are sovereign and that you rule and reign. For we ask it in Jesus' name.